please turn to Nahum chapter 3. Lord willing, we will finish Nahum today. Assyria, as a as an ancient civilization, was around for hundreds of years. Sometimes more powerful than others. Right? Um, sometimes extremely fierce. And so, I mean, back even to the second millennium BC. Now we know, of course, that Nineveh is ultimately defeated in 612. We discussed this before, right? But their fierce anger, all right which in this case was a tool of God's vengeance, was put on Samaria, the northern kingdom, in 722. But they, this is not where they, when they appeared on the scene. They appeared way back here on the scene. So they had actually been around quite a while. And so where are we? We are somewhere in here with Nahum, as we've discussed. All right? This is probably not right before the fall. This is probably when they're really strong still, 30-ish years or so before their actual fall. Nahum gives a prophecy. So in Nahum chapter 3, let's read. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through short paragraphs at a time, and we're going to discuss. All right, I'm going to ask you some questions, and we'll just think about the text and see how well we understand it. We're going to start with verses uh, 1 through 3. So Nahum 3, 1 through 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. All right, right, here's my question. What are you supposed to feel, or what do you actually feel when you read this? What's the effect? The poetic effect. Horror and revulsion. Right. Horror, revulsion, fear. All right. This is not slight misfortune. This is everyone dies in the end. All right. That's what this is. When this is over, corpses everywhere. All right. Okay. Now the second section, verses four through seven. Yes, sir. The triumph of the good guys over the bad guys? This isn't actually the triumph of the good guys over the bad guys. This is the triumph of the bad guys over the bad guys. Right. Well, it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it as, as God's conquest of Assyria, as you should, all right, in that case, you should have, I think, a mixture of. Of feelings, all right? On the one hand, there should be a sense of if you're these people, if you are, for example, the Judeans, a mixture of, whew, you know, these guys are a problem and have been a problem. We were afraid of them. We had to pay tribute to survive sometimes. Whew, right? Uh, finally, this problem has been solved for us by God. On the other hand, when you're reading it, maybe not not as much to the Judeans, but everyone else who might hear this, especially the Assyrians, should feel serious fear and serious revulsion at the idea. Of course, the Assyrians, in their power, are going to maybe hear this and go, eh, not going to happen. We're too powerful. Right? 
But the intent here is, well, intensity, right? Not a minor defeat in battle, but a, we're coming for you, and all of you are going to die, right? So, it's supposed to, I think, bring those kinds of emotions of fear. Not fear for the Judeans, if they're listening, fear for the Assyrians. Or if you happen to be, you know, if you if you think about this in terms of, um, you know, when Jesus is talking on the uh, when he's talking about the the destruction, coming destruction of Jerusalem, he says, when you see these things, you need to leave, right? Because you don't want to be caught in this. Similar thing, all right. Jews in Assyria, all right. Jews in Nineveh, any sort of merchants. We'll get to merchants in a minute. All right. When they read this, they should go, maybe I shouldn't be here right now. All right? Not an explicit command, but certainly something that they, if you're familiar with a prophecy, at this point you'd go, I'm, as a merchant, going to be somewhere else other than Nineveh, when, just in case this stuff starts coming down soon. So, fear, at least for anyone who would be there. Verses 4 through 7. Why is all these things coming to pass? And for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? My question is this, all right? What is the point of the prostitute metaphor? Why is that used here, do you think? Should be very humiliating. All right. Any other thoughts? Agreed. Is it normally prostituted boring, like it's, uh, uh, for uh, idolatry, or like uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember something like that. a metaphor? Thank you for idolatry. Yes. Yes. He mentioned prostitution is often a metaphor for idolatry. It's often used specifically for Israel and Judah in that exact context. Right. You're totally right. Sometimes they are called prostitutes because they are leaving their husband, God, and going to other men, demons, idols. Absolutely right. Now, in this case, Assyria, definitely an idolatrous nation. Okay. Any other thoughts on this? It says, and peoples by her witchcraft, according to the NIV. Hmm. Witchcraft can be so what's interesting is KGV will have if you're reading your KGV it probably has alchemy potions is the metaphor there it's it's a translational issue in ESV it's got it's ESV it's purely sexual and it's imagery all right um, the net Bible it's prostitute who is also a witch all right, and KJV and NIV are also going to be very similar, right? Because KJV has. Well, they favor harlot, mistress of witchcrafts. 
Okay, witchcraft. Some some translations use potions. Maybe that was actually the Net Bible. All right. Sorcery in the NKJV. Yeah. So what is what is Nineveh? Is Nineveh is it purely a harlot metaphor, or is a harlotry, which is a clear thing here, but also some sort of alchemy, witchcraft idea? Now, in the Old Testament, all right, alchemy and witchcraft, all those things were associated with, once again, idolatry, right? If you want, if you want God to help you, you don't go into witchcraft, all right? You don't go into alchemy, all right? When when Saul wants to talk to Samuel, all right, does he go to the right person, right, after Samuel's dead? No, he goes to someone who's going to try to call up the, 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 the spirit of Samuel from the dead. This is not a righteous thing to do. He's going to the wicked, all right? This is a, this would, this would totally be considered a wicked deed. And so it's a translational issue. The ESV takes away all of the witchcraft. So is it just prostitute or is it prostitute and witch? It's a good Bible question. I'm glad you brought that up, though. You could, yeah. It was. And on those topics, let's think about the prostitute metaphor. All right? Once again, a prostitute is paid for their services. That's the idea of a prostitute, right? Assyria. Did Assyria pay for its services? Or do people pay for Assyria's services? And the answer is actually no. Assyria, and this is the similar imagery that you'll get in the New Testament when you see the same. Assyria went out and made them have the relationships with them. Nobody wanted Assyria coming into their territory. Because if Assyria comes into your territory, they're going to kill you and make you submit and pay them money. All right. And so in this particular case, by calling Assyria the prostitute, it's not that everyone really loved Assyria and they want to spend some time with Assyria it's Assyria by brute force goes out and makes them be her clients right so it's even worse if they don't even want her she will go out and she will force them and generally they did this and this their general practice was they will go and they will say you give me tribute and as long as this nation would give them tribute they'd be cool but as soon as they rebelled, they'd be like, okay, war's on. So they'd send their army, defeat them, and often put in like a client king. All right? Maybe they'd, okay, you've got two brothers that could potentially be the king. So what they'll do is they'll kill the one who's currently the king and then say, okay, now you're the king as long as you give us money. All right? When that guy often would rebel eventually because they feel, hey, we can fight against Assyria now. Assyria would come in and say, okay, now you're gone. We're just going to incorporate you into our empire, and Assyrians are going to rule over you. This was very normal for them, and this is exactly what the northern kingdom went through as well. They started off as a vassal, and then sort of a client king, and then ultimately they were just annexed entirely, and, and they took over. This is how Assyria worked. It was very, uh, very effective. And so this is the nature of their prostitution. You will pay me. And if you don't pay me, I will send my armies, and then you will pay me. And then if you don't pay me, I'm just going to take you over. All right, so they were very wicked. And so the prostitute metaphor, in that sense, doesn't fit. But I think that's probably the point. All right, they were worse than a prostitute. Nobody wanted them, and they used their might to make people, essentially, pay them. Any more thoughts on that before we move on? 
Think of some of those ideas whenever you read other parts of Scripture that use the harlotry, use the prostitute metaphor. Um, especially of Israel. Israel was never nearly as, as powerful as Assyria was. Assyria had a lot of territory. But still, some of those same things are there, all right, where it's not just Judea and Israel, everybody seeking them, but they seeking idolatrous lovers. All right, let's look at um, verses 8 through 10. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. All right, let's talk about this particular incidents. What would it mean in verse 8 for her rampart a sea and water her wall? Why would water be an effective wall? Yeah, limits how you attack. There's not much, like, what are you going to do? Put boats on the water? Well, actually, yeah, all that or fill it in on your way there. It's not like you can just walk over it and send your chariots through, send your infantry through. Water is then a very effective defensive mechanism. That's why in ancient warfare, you're at a major advantage if you're on one side of the river and your attacker is trying to get over. It's really great. In this particular case, uh, the river would be the Nile. All right. Not only that, uh, Thebes was surrounded by essentially a moat. All right. They they dug a canal and they essentially became a moat. Very tough. Yet they lost. All right. Who do you, who who defeated them? Does anybody know? This is actually talking about an event. Which uh, is, is helpful, because this helps determine the date. So, in 663, right, Thebes was conquered. What's funny about this one is the Assyrians are the ones who did the conquering. And so the taunt is very interesting to me, all right? Because he's talking to them about something they would certainly know, because they were themselves the ones who went and crushed Thebes. Are you better than Thebes? And of course, their answer would say, yes, we are in fact better than Thebes. We, we crushed Thebes. All right. And God's going, are you really better than Thebes? All right. Now, Thebes had allies. All right. Who's Cush? Amen. Ethiopia would be Cush. All right, where's put? Anybody know? Just west of Egypt. All right. What about Libya? North Africa. North Africa, right, just west of that on the northern coast. So both put and Libya there. So you've got Thebes, all right, where the Nile is. You've got Cush, who was ally to the south, southeast. All right, you've got put, you've got Libya. All right, Syria comes down, defeats all of them. Multiple times, actually. But in this case, it's just talking about Thebes. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet, despite the fact that this is Egypt, 
often one of the most powerful empires in the ancient world, all right, with allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street, and her honored men, for her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. What's that last piece discussing? Slavery. Slavery, right? It's, as we've discussed before, whenever you go conquer a land, you, there's certain people you take into exile, especially, all right? Good choices would be honored men and great men. You take the rich and the powerful because the rich and powerful are going to be the ones who are more likely to lead a revolt. And so this is talking about, right, Thebes became an exile. Assyria was the one who exiled them, right? Assyria was the one who conquered them and then exiled them. We've talked about how, like for, you know, at 722, when this happened, this is exactly what Assyria does, all right? This is what Babylonia or Babylon will do later, all right? And you actually have in the ancient records, and I found this interesting. I saw this number this week. Uh, Sargon, the Assyrian king who exiled Samaria, he's they've got they've got records of various ones of their you know various conquests they've had. We talked last time about the uh, Lachish conquest and, and the reliefs there. He claimed, which who knows if it's exactly true, but it's a very precise number. Sargon claimed that he deported from Samaria whenever he conquered it, twenty-seven thousand two hundred and ninety people. All right, and he took them to from Samaria. If you think on a map, here's Samaria. He took them to northern Syria, and then way over to Iran, Iran. All right, which at the time would not be Iran; it would be more like the land of the Medes and the Persians. And so he had taken 27,290 people, he claims, from Samaria. Well, that's exactly what they're doing in Thebes. They go down there, let's find the great men, let's find the honored man, let's cast lots. Let's figure out which ones we're going to take and where we're going to take them. All right. So God is talking to Assyria all right, about something that Assyria had done. And goes... Are you better than them? Yes, we're better. Mm -mm. So let's look at the next piece. 11 through 13. Continuing on with the discussion of Thebes. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. All right, what's going on here? Why would he call them? What's the significance of drunken in this context? You're not going to be organized, and you're not going to be able to fight well. All right. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. They won't find it. Spoiler. 
All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. Shaken they fall into the mouth of the eater. What does that mean? There's another metaphor. What do we mean for fortresses to be like figs? Flimsy. Flimsy. Now fortresses not supposed to be flimsy, right? Supposed to be very tough. Instead, they're going to be we want the fruit of this fortress. How hard is it going to be? Eh. Shake the tree. Fruit will fall. It's that easy. We're just going to crush you. Alright? Very good. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Thoughts? Don't agree, but <laughs> <laughs> preface that. But I think that what they're implying is that the women were weaker yeah. and more helpless, and they would be easy to be easy to take over. And they're certainly not going to be trained in war, right? Yeah. Because what I'm thinking is, when you go back to the great men. Um, and the powerful men, mm-hmm. the honorable men, I think there's a differential there. The great men I'm seeing as like some of the warriors. Mm-hmm. They would bind them with chains so that they couldn't fight them. So then you get down here and you've got the others are like women. They're, they're weak. We don't have to really worry about them. We're just going to roll over them. Yeah. Easy conquests is what they're saying, right? Again, don't totally you don't totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, Bill? I, I think what you said though is right. They, they wouldn't have been trained for battle. They right. wouldn't know how to do that kind of stuff. Even yeah. if they were, if you took two men and trained one set and didn't train the other set, they're going to be way weaker. Yeah. Totally. And then the enemies are going to go and let's see, fires devoured your bars. Destroy all their alcoholic establishments. <laughs> okay, so if that's not what it means, what does it actually mean, right? Their gates. Their gates, right? Think of like the crossbars at the gates, and its fire is just—it's going to burn your defenses. It's a—it's a roundabout way of saying your defenses are going to fall super quickly, right? Yeah. Okay. Any questions about that? Now, this, this next one is, there's some interesting, I don't know, there's an interesting metaphor here that seems to have multiple applications. Let's, let's, and, and let's think about the locust, all right? It's a major metaphor at the, at the last part of it. Right? Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will be, there the, excuse me, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like a cloud of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. 
Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Okay, so verse 14. What's the idea? Like, do your best. It's not going to matter. We're going to burn in the first before. We're going to burn you with the gates down. Mm-hmm. So get some water. Put the fire out if you can. Mm-hmm. Build more bricks. Make more walls. Right? It's, it's very similar to what happened before when God taunts Assyria. He's like, we're coming. Be prepared. Because it doesn't matter. You're going to get crushed. Right? It's the same idea. It's make those bricks. Make those walls. won't matter. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourself like the locust. That seems like an interesting transition there. Multiply like the grasshopper. What is going on? Read. Think about this. What is going on with this locust and grasshopper metaphor? Well, we know that locusts devour anything that they come in contact with. Mm -hmm. And their swarms are so huge. Mm Mm-hmm. So basically they're saying, we're going to destroy you like locusts. We're just going to come over you. We're going to, everything in our path. doesn't matter how many of you there are. You can keep multiplying all you want. We're going to destroy you. Yeah. And grasshoppers are the same way. They eat and destroy. Right. And so you've got the image of super fearful in antiquity. All right. Um, Exactly what you said. Big swarm of locusts. They're going to come and destroy all your agriculture. That means you're going to die, right? Because you're going to run out of food. Major, major problem. Now, what's it's a, it will devour you like the locusts. Exactly what you're saying. Then it switches. Now you multiply yourself like locusts. Same image. All right, make yourself into an unbeatable swarm that can't be stopped, right? Because in the ancient world, they could not do anything about a locust swarm. It's just like... You know, it's not like you can go out to your plants and just sort of shoo the locust off. There's, you know, there's millions and millions of them covering all your stuff. You're just going to lose stuff. All right. Nothing you can do about it. So multiply yourself like locusts. All right. Do the same thing. It won't matter. Multiply like the grasshopper. Then, verse 16. A little different. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. What's that referring to? Who who are the locusts here? Right. It's it's a it's a the metaphor switches, right? Who are the locusts at first? First, the locusts are the Medes and Babylonians, who God is sending to destroy Nineveh. Then the locusts are, all right, now you make yourself like locusts. It won't matter. Then you increase your merchants more than the stars of the heaven. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. The merchants, which they had a ton of, right? What are they going to do? They're going to leave, right? And this goes back to their empire, all right? They were a 
super rich empire, right? Because they were conquering lands and forcing tribute, getting all sorts of stuff into the cities. It's going to be a major, major mercantile thing going on in the kingdom of Assyria. Now all your merchants, poof. Just like the locusts can come in very quickly, right? What kind of warning do you get? Well, you see them coming on the horizon and they're there. Not very long. No time. Now they're there and then suddenly they're gone. They just fly away. In other words, you're rich. You're powerful. You're, you're on top of the world. There goes your wealth. All the merchants. They just leave. Why? Well, because they... Afraid of getting killed, right? Now, continuing on. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribe like clouds of locusts settling on the fences. In a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. All right? Where does the uh, metaphor go now? Yeah, locusts, all right. A locust is not a tough thing. A grasshopper is not a tough thing. If you have millions of them descending on you, that's a problem, all right? But they are very fleeting, all right? They are a dangerous but fleeting threat, all right? Your princes, your, these would be your generals, your, your strong warriors. They're like the grasshoppers, all right? They're like the locusts. What about the scribes? This is actually pointing to um, one of the realities of Assyria. They were a major intellectual powerhouse at the time. Right? The kings would, would pay for their scribes to go other places, get documents, and bring them back. All right? And so they weren't just a military power. And we, when we actually, from, you know, from excavations and, and various things and whatnot, we actually have a lot of the stuff that they've gathered, all right? And so we have a lot of ancient mythology and stuff from the Assyrians because they, in fact, did this. They were super big into scribal knowledge, and as often ancient kings would do, I'm not only going to conquer you, I'm also going to take your literature, and I'm going to store it, and we are not only going to be the center of the world from a power standpoint, we'll be the center of the world from an intellectual standpoint. But the scribes are like grasshoppers, all right? That only works, right? That only works when you're king of the world. It doesn't work when, if, as it says in verse 3, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. That's, that's not good scribal territory, right? That's your intellectual domination, just like your military domination, is gone, because your scribes or have either fled, or are in those piles of corpses. So your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. They just, the locusts, where do they come from? Who knows? Where do they go? Who knows? They're here. They do devastation. But... Or they're here and they're effective at what they do, the scribes and the princes, but then they're gone. They're very transient. Verse 18. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. 
Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Similar to the drunk thing, right? If you're drunk, you can't fight. If you're asleep, you also can't fight, right? Same idea. Your shepherds are asleep. Of course, the shepherds being the idea of those who would, who would lead the sheep, right? Who would the sheep be? Well, in the metaphor, the sheep would be the warriors, right? The, the normal folk. The shepherds would be the, well, here's your generals and whatnot in your army. Well, your generals are asleep. There's no one to lead your army, right? Or they're just not very good at it because they're drunk or they're asleep. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. What's bad about that? What's good about that? And what's bad about that? If you want to fight back, there's no organization. Fleeing to the mountains is a fairly good thing to do if you don't want to be completely wiped out, right? But it is not an effective place, right, to really organize a country. Um, like, for example, um, if, you, if we jump forward in history uh, 400 years, um, whenever the Jews start the Maccabean Revolt, what do they do right after they murder some Greeks for trying to make them um, uh, be idolaters? Well, they fled to the mountains because it's kind of hard to go into, on all those nukes and crannies and find out all the people. And so the people, they, they're going to fly to the mountains, some of them, at least those that survive, right, with no organization, with no leaders. They're just going to be surviving out there. And so the people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Because if they're gathered in the plains, what's going to happen? Well, the Medes and the Persian and the Babylon's going to go. There they are. Let's go make them slaves or just slaughter them, right? But if they're scattered in the mountains, that's too much trouble, right? We've just destroyed Nineveh. We've torn down its walls. We've killed everyone that we could find in the city who couldn't get out. All their leadership is dead. That's too much trouble. Who cares? We're going to go back home. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Everyone who hears the news, what's their thoughts, right? When Judah hears about this, how do they feel? Thank you. Right? When Syria hears about this, what are they going to think? When Thebes hears about this, what are they going to do? Finally, those guys were a pain, right? Um, Everyone, except Nineveh, right? Everyone is going to be super happy about this. Because Nineveh was not friendly, right? Upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. All right? And the answer is, of course, no one, right? They conquered everyone they, they would come across well, until this point. And so everyone is going to be super happy that this prostitute, perhaps witch prostitute, right, who was forcing them to be her, her slaves is killed. Everybody, sigh of relief. Nineveh is dead. So that's the book of Nahum. Like I said earlier, I think, what do you learn from this, right? Well, from a scriptural perspective, why does this thing exist, all right? 
it would exist as a comfort to Israel and as a warning to Assyria, right? The Israelites were really primarily the people of Judah because when this came, Samaria was at that point a annexed province of Assyria. All right? Certainly the Judeans would hear this and go, this, is, this country has been a huge pain to us. Thanks be to God that Nineveh is destroyed or is going to be destroyed. I hope it comes soon, right? That's what they're going to be saying. Please, however long this is from now, one year, just bring it soon, right? They're going to feel really good about it. Certain people also, right? Who else would be happy about this? Well, if the Syrians hear about it, the Thebans will hear about it, they're certainly going to be happy. Would they hear about a Jewish prophecy? Maybe not, right? What about the Sumerians? What about the Jews who live there still? Sure. Sure, over 20,000 of them were exiled. Maybe those who were exiled will also hear about it. Because once the person or the people who exiled you have come to an end, once they've been killed, you might actually be able to go back. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened after the Babylonian exile. Right? Jews were exiled to Babylon. All right? And when it was over, Cyrus says, you can go back if you want to. Many stayed, but many came back, and that's all in the scriptures. And so, it is a major comfort, all right, that finally the enemy is defeated. But let's also apply this to ourselves, all right? I do not expect a future destruction of Iraq based on this, all right? Because this is all in that general vicinity, all right? This is not a prophecy of any of those things. And so, I don't look, because, I mean, this happened here. So it's a past event. So there's not a future event I look forward to for this prophecy. There's no need for it. But at the very least, what we can do, like I said earlier, is remember that God is patient, all right? Because Assyria, like I said, hundreds of years. God allowed them to live hundreds of years. God allowed them to repent at one point, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, Jonah. God allowed Nineveh to repent. And maybe that pushed it off some. All right? God was patient with them as he is patient with us. But when we remember God's patience, we should always remember that it comes to an end sometimes. Just like it did for them. All right? So when God is being patient with you, be thankful. But also, as a part of that, be a little afraid. Because God's patience will come to an end for those who do not follow Him. Alright? Any questions about the book of Nahum as a whole? Any other thoughts anybody would like to share? Yes, sir. I don't know if this is just me, but I see a little bit of similarities between Nahum and um, the book of Revelation, which... Uh, mm-hmm. Babylon, um, the whore of Babylon, you know, is compared, you know, I, I see, like, this act of judgment has some correlation to the final act of judgment. And, you know, do you see anything similar? Absolutely. Yeah, because this is God, this is how God works in various times and will ultimately work in the end. You're right. There comes an end to God's patience. Right. Ultimately, Satan himself must be defeated. And ultimately, the end must come. The resurrection. Those are all good things. Except for those who are not the followers of God.
So yeah, very similar. Any other thoughts? Okay. Just a fear, mm -hmm. because I, it seems like that the God dealt with nations, and the way that we preach the gospel now it seems like he's much more dealing with individuals, but I don't think he's quit dealing with nations, and that makes me really afraid to live here sometimes. Yeah. We're on, to, we're on top of the world, though. For now. <laughs> For now, right. You're right. America is still the most powerful nation, probably. China's a problem. Right. That could change in a year. That could change in 10 years or 100 years. Who knows? And based on the gospel light that shined in America, it's probably the most wicked nation that's ever existed. Mm-hmm. Something worth being fearful about. Agreed. Yes, Kim? But isn't there a little glimmer of hope in the fact that there were people that actually survived this mm -hmm. and were allowed to be scattered into the mountains? Yeah. So there's a glimmer of hope that if you take it as they were Christians or that he allowed some to escape this, then too have a hope that if something catastrophic were to happen. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, Chip? Uh, I'm, well, and over the last couple of months I've read three books about three women who survived birth canal, Auschwitz, mm -hmm. for three years and were repatriated. And the Slavic people who were imprisoned there when they were uh, liberated and went back to their countries and the Soviet Union took over 